So today my guest is Bill Adamson. Uh, Bill's an osteopath here in Melbourne and uh, I've known Bill for about eight years and uh, not only is he one of the the best osteopaths, or he is the best osteopath that I've ever um, come across, um, but he's a uh, He's a very smart man. He's uh, experienced in biomechanics, rehabilitation, uh, the neuroscience of pain. He lectures at RMIT, uh, and he's also president uh, of the Osteopathy Australia. and And he's got a very, yeah. He he works differently to other osteos I've worked with, and I'm I was interested to find out today more about his approach when it comes to learning and how he's learned. And I think there's some really valuable insights that he provides um, that uh, a lot of other people can sort of take some ideas from. So enjoy listening to Bill. He's a good man. And uh, yeah, it's a good talk. Thanks a lot. Hi, Stu. You made it. Got there. Excellent. Excellent. How are you, man? I'm pretty good. Just having the uh, you know the standard get back to work after a pandemic sort of day. Yeah, it's uh, oh well things are things are starting to to loosen up, but is 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 that the right thing? I don't know. Yeah, we'll find out in the next month or two. I think. Yeah, we will. So um, thank you, thank you for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule to to jump onto this uh, learning to fly podcast with me. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, excellent. Well, I thought today we'd just, uh, I sort of describe you to people as uh, sort of an osteophilosopher. Um, so, someone who is, uh, I think, at the, at the, at the height, literally and metaphysically, uh, of, of what they do. And I thought it'd be good to sort of find out how you got so good at what you do, but also sort of riff on, I don't know, riff on the, as we, as we do, uh, whenever we catch up, riff on the state of the world and, and what's going on. Yeah, it's an interesting time, isn't it? So it is. Um, so as a, as, a, as a practitioner, a practitioner in the art of oste, is it, how do you pronounce it, osteopathy? That's it. Yeah, good work. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, what, 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 what are you sort of thinking in terms of, post-COVID and the impacts on your industry is in, term, in terms of the, that, that field. Do you see major changes ahead or what do you think is going to happen? It's pretty interesting, isn't it? So I'm an osteopath by trade and I see people, for those that don't know, I, I see people for headaches and necks and backs and aches and pains and those sorts of things and use a variety of approaches to make people feel better. Um and so my background is I've lectured in pain and biomechanics and that sort of stuff. But I also, as well as being a practitioner, I, I run a, a medical practice. And and um, and so we've been getting all the information coming through from the government, the RACGP, the Royal Association of GPs and um, the World Health Organization, as well as all the anti-vaxxers and 5G conspiracy theorists who are pretty keen to inform us of all the world rules. And it's been a really fascinating time to try and navigate a business through that as well as to navigate all of the information that's coming in for the osteopathic industry it's tough we're you know we're face-to-face practitioners we spend half an hour to 45 minutes with people and yeah um and so you know for us it's probably not as bad as for hospitality or the arts because 
um, we can you can still practice via telehealth and online. But yeah. the majority of what we do is face to face. So, you know, I've come back to work this week and I'm wearing a mask. I'm I've got 15 minute breaks between every patient. I'm alcohol swabbing the bed, the table, the, every horizontal surface. Our receptionist calling everyone and making sure they've got you no know, cold and flu symptoms and you know, if you're looking at the reports from the government and you're looking at what the, the group of eight, the top eight universities in Australia are suggesting, this is going to be an 18-month to two-year process. Um, yeah. And the public health approach from in Australia is looking like it's one that's attempting, rather than what New Zealand has done, which is to try to eliminate the disease, the public health approach in Australia is to try to control and suppress outbreaks. So get it down to a really low level, flatten the curve as much as possible, and then open things up but then also trace and target any outbreaks to try and control them. So what that looks like for my industry or the medical industry at whole over the next 18 to 24 months, it's, um, it's anyone's guess, really. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, yeah, you can't get away from I mean, I could, I could as, as you have many times, Bill, sort of saved both my physical and mental health since I've been in Australia, um, and I could call you up and I could say this and this and this, but I, I don't think you'd really want me um, sort of, you know, sort of, clicking my neck myself would you <laughs> there are worse things it's you know it's like it's like the um i've just been working today we've been targeted by a group of anti-vax um people on our um, neighborhood clinic facebook page and um so we've had about 20 hits on our various posts in the last four or five hours um telling us that we are um stupid for using vaccines and um why would you ever um, do that to people? And that's probably more concerning than someone clicking their own neck, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, there are. Uh, yeah, that's. Um, yeah, there's a, 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 yeah, there seems to be quite a. There's a sway of the population out there that are that fall under this stuff quite. Uh, it's really scary. I think the the lack of trust in experts and the, and the real distrust in institutions that we're seeing at the moment. I'm finding. It's really hard to navigate as a person, but also just really concerning as a citizen. You know, you you want to you want to be able to trust your government first of all. And in Australia, we're lucky that we've probably got a bit more trust in government than some of the other Western democracies. But at the same time, um, yeah, we're not seeing. Yeah, they, 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 I think that, and that's the, the the challenge. I think, and and learning often too falls under this is that it almost seems to be. Um, uh, and, and I don't know exactly where it's come from, but there's that whole almost mistrust of expertise in regards to what's your what's your real agenda here, mm. um, and 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 obviously being able to sort of uh, you know throw up expertise as well their their bias towards this or you know straight away, um, and 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 learning often falls under that too in mm. regards to. It's not about expertise. It's more about uh, it's sort of say it's that whole re- thing that's come up with. It's not about expertise. It's all about experience. It's yeah. like, well, well, Mr. Trump's pretty experienced in uh, running casinos, isn't he? How's that? How's that all worked out for you? He's not a doctor, but if you were to inject some sunshine into your life, maybe that'd make a difference. Who knows? Exactly. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, and I guess with yeah, and, and as you said, with universities, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how they navigate. I mean, so let's talk. So you, because you, you obviously do, because um, you, you, you lecture, you teach at, um, at universities. Yeah, yeah. The last couple of years, I've 
lectured at RMIT and at VU um, sessionally, um, and but I actually took this year off to have a bit of a break, which you know hasn't quite worked out. Uh, yeah, it's like I'm. I'm pretty glad I'm not in a university sector or or a primary school or high school teacher right now, trying to navigate home education and, and the rollout of a whole new platform um, for students at the same time. That would be a nightmare. Yeah, it's yeah because it's you can only do so much um, over a screen. I mean, especially I imagine with uh, with osteos, it's you know you you've got to be again you've got to be around people and and you need to be you know feel feel that part of the shoulder and what do you think's going on there and all that sort of stuff yeah it's interesting isn't it like I, there's you probably know more about the education stuff than i do I, I, but the, in terms of it learning there's an element that you know a lot of osteo stuff's very technical you know it's anatomy physiology pathology it's all pretty bland stuff you can learn through youtube or anything else but there is that engagement that comes from sitting in the classroom listening to your lecturer asking questions being motivated by your, your peers as well as your lecturer which you certainly lose and then obviously the the hands-on technique stuff and the examination stuff you certainly need um in in session with lecturers i'm not sure how the universities have been navigating that at the moment um, yeah well i think the a lot of that tertiary education was you know obviously they've been struggling with with you know intake and numbers and, and, and what's the university's role in the future it used to be you know of course the classic of go to university get a job um and that and that has hasn't been happening for a while now so that's the the you know university is still trying to find certainly in the there, there, there'll always be vocations where you need to go to university in terms of getting that hired you know especially in and and the medical and lawyers and all that sort of stuff but you know how do how do universities keep themselves relevant um and modern yeah. and, and and people saying hey if i'm going to spend thousands of dollars what do i get for it tens of thousands of dollars yeah yeah, yeah. Last amount of money and if your university sector is based on international students who are no longer allowed to come into the country or meant to be coming from a country that's being pissed off by a foreign policy approach yeah. yeah it's 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 yeah the next uh the next couple of years is going to be very uh, yeah, very interesting times mm. yeah so so let's uh let's 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 well we'll talk we're going to talk more about the osteo stuff but let's let's jump back to um i'm always fascinated to to find out from people um so, so if I was if I was hanging out with sixteen-year-old Bill, mm. um, did, did what, what what was Bill into in school, and did Bill want to be uh, an osteopath at sixteen years old? What was what was your thing? What was did you have a career in mind back then? Uh, no, I was I, similar to then as now. I think I was probably a bit of a jack of all trades. I was very sporty, so I was right into my AFL and cricket. But I was also captain of the debating team, so I tried to straddle two worlds there, and um, that's not surprising. And uh, and that was, I guess, that was a bit odd. What would I have wanted to be an osteo? I think what led me to becoming an osteo was sort of twofold. I, being sporty, I remember I got to go to the AIS for a sports camp thing, and uh, I was I was pretty blown away with the facilities there, and I I probably realised I wasn't quite good enough at sport at that point to go to to that level but watching all the gadgets and the biomechanists work I was pretty inspired and then but I was also really into reading lots of books and being a mad nerd and and um 
and writing, but I had a terrible English teacher who fortuitously put me off doing an arts or law degree um, because she accused me of cheating and plagiarising uh, oh. because she couldn't believe a big footy head could write such a good, um, a good short story that won an award. So anyway, I was dissuaded from going down the arts path and, um, and had had a positive experience with an osteopath as a, as a young footballer and that, that was what sort of led me towards becoming an osteo um, and then osteo is a, is a, it's a five-year degree and um, which is a long time when you're eight. Yeah. Like that's a, and, um, and so I really didn't enjoy being at uni that much because it was a lot of very, very heavy textbook learning, not much um, in the way of creativity or exploration, but I was good enough to get the marks and, and go through. I did, I was very lucky. My fourth and fifth year, I had a lecturer who was, you know, I think everyone has that one or two great teachers in their life at some point, which is probably a, an element of being in the right place at the right time. And also just having that, um, you know, a teacher might resonate with you because of who you are and who they are. And anyway, this guy was um, a biomechanist by trade, which is part of my interest. And, and he was, um, he was just hugely encouraging of being ridiculously creative in your approach. And, you know, he, he would start the semester with uh, the, there was 50 conditions, 50, you know, diagnoses of back injuries and knee injuries and foot injuries and different things. And the exam you would tell you at the start was to come up with three different ways that that injury could occur and three different injuries that injury could, could cause. And his, his yeah. thing was, you know, the more, the more creative, the better. You know, his, his catch cry was, that's gold. And, uh, yeah. So he was the one who said, what, what, was, what was his name? His name was Paul Francis, and he's now the head shoe designer at Adidas International. Oh, um, that's, a, that's, a nice, that's a nice career. Link. Isn't it? So he's pretty amazing. His career path is one that is incredible. He, uh, he wasn't good enough for VU, Victoria University in Melbourne, where I started. Uh, his notes weren't good enough. He probably got team to be um, part of their, I think, seven or eight person innovation team where they got to spend the entire lottery budget on winning gold medals for the British London Olympics in 2012. And from that, he got poached by Nike to be the personal physician to any of the Nike athletes that got injured. And then from that, yeah. somehow he wrangled his way into Adidas to become their shoe designer. Cool. <laughs> So he was one of those ones that you just you sit there and you listen and, and you'd have students from other year levels coming into his class because he was so um, so interesting. So, yeah. so it gave such a great perspective. And so there was a few of us that were really keen acolytes of his and we, um, we're still all very close now and um, we've all done a variety of different things. Yeah, it just shows you the impact of, um, yeah, you, you, I, I was the same with university too. Most of the lecturers... Um, you know, you kind of avoid them, but the you know there there was a couple of people where you know even at the end of the year there'd be a packed yeah. hall of three hundred people, and that everyone was just hanging off their every word, and it just you could you could again you could put the same content mm. in someone else's hands and have it delivered in a completely yeah. different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and it is it's it's one of those I'm like, speaking with friends and family, and, you know, a partner now. And I reckon everyone has that one or two in their life where they've got that teacher that just really gets them, it sets them on their path. My, my, my dad, is a, he was a maths teacher and maths nerd. He was just retired and he had this, he was doing 
philosophy in the seventies, and he had a, a maths lecture in his philosophy path. Who got, who dad would just go to his classes all the time because he was so amazing and inspired dad to become a maths teacher. Yeah. So 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 you, so after five mm. years, you um, is there more study still to do, or basically you, you're 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 off and running? Oh, there's always more study. Like I love learning, and that what's one of the so I I'd said I'd taken a year off from teaching at universities this year. So I've been juggling a bit the last few years. We some friends and I started the neighbourhood clinic, the medical practice. I was lecturing at the two unis, and then I was practicing. And so the goal this year was to sort of step back from the unis reassess a bit of where I was at and what I was doing. To stay at university and lecturing and to do it properly, you really have to do a PhD. And I was sort of umming and ahhing whether I should do a PhD and really throw myself into that academic pathway or or focus more on the business side of things or just, you know, enjoy life as an osteopath, which is a pretty good um, work. It's a pretty good job as far as things go. And I'd, um, I'd, I'd enrolled with – it's a bit upsetting. This pandemic's really thrown a spanner in the works. My best osteo friend and I had managed to get our way into a the only the only and the best headache masters in the world, which is the University of Copenhagen, and they hadn't previously accepted osteopaths. Uh, I think they'd only have they'd only ever had a dentist. They're usually just all doctors, and so they'd had a dentist in the past. And yeah. Anyway, we applied, and they were a bit confused as to who we were, and. Um, numerous emails back and forth, we got accepted into this course. And so we're meant to be going there in October to do, so it was going to be six two-week intensive blocks over two years interspersed with off-site coursework. Um, so you were going to Copenhagen? In October, yeah. Um, and so that was the plan was to, to really, because I treat quite a lot of headache patients as it is, but I really wanted to learn yeah. more um, from the top. And, and this course... Is the best. Like they just get the bee's knees of academics who have researched headaches for years as their guest lecturers for these two week blocks. So you sit there and you have people from all around the world who are at the top of their field teaching you. Um, followed by then uh, a period in the hospital where you do the rounds with them, um, and then you go home do your do your coursework. But um, that's all. That's all being put on hold. Yeah. There, there's a lot of there's a yeah I don't think there's going to be a lot of international travel. For no, years. no, and if there is, you'll be stuck in a in a quarantine block for two weeks before that. Yeah, you'll be in a you'll be in a hotel in Copenhagen, um, watching the watching yes, the course on right. a computer, going well. This, this is this is this has cost me a lot of money to come all this way to yes this, to fly um, home and spend another two weeks in a hotel room doing your coursework. Yeah, yeah, so. So one thing, and I think I've asked you this before, but I'm always intrigued because I've I've seen a lot of, you know, obviously my 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 body is 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 not a temple, uh, and I've I've seen a lot of of chiropractors and osteos and all various people over the years, and I I consider you, I consider you to be the best that I've in in the field that that you know in in terms of people that I've I've seen. What what is it about in terms of in terms of your approach to the craft because it is a craft um and, and and in terms of the subject as you said it sort of said because and I think people can apply this to lots of different things that they're into what is it in terms of do you focus more on the is there is there a, is there a in terms of how you learnt and how you practice and and as you said you talked about the biomechanics and stuff is there something about the way that you've approached osseo that you think has maybe made you 
better than a, a better osteo than if you hadn't, if you know what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah. Um, what makes me the osteo that I am? Osteo of the year. <laughs> what makes, what happened? Nominated by one, Stu, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, I think, I think there's an element that it has to be, yeah, I'm sure there's people out there who don't think I'm the best osteo, uh, um, but I think there's an element that I, what I try and teach my students is you have to care about the people you're treating and you have to be interested because yeah. there's that great saying, no one knows how much you know unless they know you care. And so you can have all the knowledge in the yeah. world, but if you don't really care about people, that message isn't going to get through. And so as an osteo who works with people in pain, a lot of what you're trying to do is twofold. You're trying to, well, threefold. You're trying to understand what's going on so that you can explain what's happening and then you try to apply a hands-on intervention or a rehab-based approach to getting them out of that pain they're in. So I, I think I think initially I was heavily based on the theory and the mechanics and the, the technique. And as time's gone by, that stuff's easier and easier. And it's more a matter of um, engaging with the person in front of you that I, I think is probably a part of my approach. It may not be a part of others' approaches, but... Hopefully that's what my students yeah. have taken out of it. The subject I was teaching was communication and, and the science of communication. Um, oh, so because so, I was going to say, so your your how was your approach to teaching this different to how you were taught? Mm. How how do you what do you spend more time on that than maybe others do? Well, we never got taught how to talk, and we never did a subject on communication with patients. And so what I've yeah. done to get that job at RMIT was, a, was I'd done a few talks to the osteo community and then I'd done a webinar and then through that got approached from RMIT to see if I could, if I was interested in lecturing and, then, and I was. And from that, I was asked to essentially pick up the 50 years and, and create a subject based around the concept of communication and the science of communication. Um, and so I, uh, I had great fun writing those lectures because, you know, getting a captive audience of 100 students where they can't really run away and, and you get um, unadulterated opportunity to tell all the jokes you think that you're really funny with and then you're dispersing that with the occasional journal article. That was a dream come true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was what I did. I sort of, you'd come up with what's the goal of the lecture and then you'd work your way back from how do you then, what's the method to getting to that goal? And um, and and that means that you have to communicate it. Well, if you're lecturing on communication, it has to be a good session. It has to be, you know, engaging. In it. So, so the science of communication was this in relation to yeah. being a practitioner, or is this something that, or is this in going, hey, the the, the core of this stuff you can use in any situation? people can take it from where, what they will, but no, it was heavily based around the the clinical experience. Um, and so the the opening lecture was always on. Placebo, nocebo, and um, regression to the mean, right? So, I and 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 I have no idea what you just said. So, placebo is the positive effect of an intervention. Nocebo is the negative yep. effect of uh, intervention, and to the mean that you know you, you break your arm, it gets better after four weeks, basically. And so the, the, that lecture itself is quite fun because it's got all these ridiculous pieces of research of, of injuries where people have had crazy injuries and either have felt no pain or felt intense amounts of pain. 
And so that was the idea of that lecture was to, to bring the students' concept into the idea that it wasn't just their hands-on techniques or their biomechanical knowledge that got someone better, but it was, there was a whole lot of other stuff underlying the interaction that helped people get out of the condition they were feeling or whatever, whatever the situation was. And the, the, the best, the best, I'll do a very quick example of it was the best uh, one I always enjoy is in 1995, there was a case study written up in the British Medical Journal of a guy in New Zealand stepping off a ladder onto a giant nail that went all the way through his foot. He looks down, he sees this nail and he shrieks in pain and turns green and they have to call the fire department and the um, ambulance and um, chops this bit of wood that the nail is in out and they take the wood, the nail and his foot and they put it in the ambulance with the man and they take him to hospital whilst he's in, you know, extreme amounts of pain. Um, and he gets to the hospital and they're very carefully using scissors to chop the, the, the work boot off and they get take his chop around the sock and they open it up and, and, um, and he's still in huge amounts of pain. They find that the nail has gone, rather than going through the foot, it's gone between his toes and not, not even pierced the skin. <laughs> so this poor bloke, not only did he have to go back to the work site and explain to these blokes who wouldn't have been the kindest and um, um, most accepting of this story, um, but he, the, he was a broken boot, which was what they wrote about. But that's sort of the example of um, the, the nature that pain can be weird and multifactorial and, and influenced by multiple, multiple things. Um, and, and conversely, you have stories of soldiers at war or people playing sport where they have horrific broken bones or torn muscles and they don't even feel them until after the event. And so that the pain is, all pain is on this giant spectrum. Um, some is completely modulated by the body up or tissues up and some is modulated entirely by the brain down. Um, and that when you're engaging with a patient, a lot of it's um, trying to understand all the layers that are in their mind as to what's going on. Um, so that you can communicate whatever it is that you need to communicate to make them feel more comfortable. And, and I guess um, that's the old, you know, you've, you've probably got a bunch of assumptions, but if you're not listening to what the person's saying in front of you, you might just be going, oh, yeah, well, I've seen, I've seen lots, of, I've seen lots exactly. of these before. So it's Exactly, and that's the classic, isn't it? But, you know, just because I've seen a thousand back injuries before doesn't mean the person who's got the back injury um, has ever had it before. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um, yeah, that that that, that certainly uh, gives me a little bit of insight into uh, into why you're so good, Bill. <laughs> Thanks, Stu. <Jim. laughs> so, uh, another another question, I'm and 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 I'm and I'm, I'll be interested to hear your answer in this is that I always like to find out from people going back to sixteen year old Bill, probably even fifteen or fourteen. What was the first um, the music you discovered that wasn't what you, you know, in terms of, you know, listening to music from your parents and, and, um, you know, you sort of grow up with your, with that around the house, but then at some stage you, you discover a band or a singer or something that's basically, it's yours and, and it could be, end up being the first album that you've purchased. What was your, uh, what was your first one that you, what was your music? We were, you my brother and I were pretty close and I guess, um, we went through the stage that a lot of young Melbournians my age went through. We just listened to a lot of Triple J from probably age 12 or 13. And I reckon the first album, I reckon the first album that I bought would have been the Living End debut album. I think it was self-titled. I'm pretty sure it was self-titled. We would listen to that on repeat um, 
whilst yeah. playing indoor cricket, this silly game that we'd invented for must have been months on end. I reckon that was, I can probably recite every word. And then, I, then around that same time, I reckon it was Green Day and Blink 182. Those three are the ones that really strike me as the first band. So that's that's that sort of uh, early early nineties, uh, mid mid to late, yeah, mid to late nineties, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that's the first uh, that's the first Blink One Eight Two that's been thrown out. I was wondering who <laughs> was going to go there first, and and you didn't disappoint. Depends on the age bracket, doesn't it? Uh, it's like it's seven. It's, it's yeah. an interesting question, isn't it? Like that, those that music you listen to from age thirteen, fourteen to. 24, 25, they're the soundtracks. They're the, they're the songs and the music that sticks most in my mind, for sure. As I've got older, I've listened to less and less, um, less and less new music, but also maybe the way that we listen to music's changed. Like it's it's not often that I buy albums anymore, it's, you know, through Spotify or Apple Music, and no. I don't really just sit there and listen to it over and over anymore like I used to either. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a lot to do with that sort yeah. of formation of identity. Uh, that you know, as you're as you're sort of putting different clothes on and find, finding which ones fit and become you, music is a big part of of creating your own voice and identity. And you kind of then go back to that. Like the I've been reading that a lot of people have been on mm. during this whole pandemic. Um, a lot of people have been on big nostalgic trips in terms of oh. almost their comfort food. So they've been listening to the music that they listened to when they were 18 years old, and they've been watching the movies that they loved when they were teenagers. Because it's almost like going back to the yeah, going yeah. To almost like the comfort food. It's a nostalgia is uh, is a, yeah. I can imagine that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Hey, mate. Well, look, it's uh, also always uh, great to talk to you. Uh, I'm uh, going to be coming in to see you in the <laughs> next few days, and uh, and I look forward to um, catching up then. And yeah, thanks for taking the time, man. It's always good to no. Uh, thank you for asking me. Things that often it's been good all right buddy thanks mate speak to you later talk to you soon bye